Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking at chapter 7. One of the things I really appreciate about the Bible, I mean, I appreciate all kinds of things about the Bible. It is far and away my favorite book, and it changes my life day by day and minute by minute. Every time I open it, it shows me a new picture of Christ, and it shows me uh, where I need to be with Him. One of the things I really like about the Bible is that it is a book of full disclosure. God doesn't leave us in the dark as to where He is going and what He would like us to do. He tells us everything. We're told by the prophet Amos, Surely the Lord God will do nothing except He reveal His secret to His servants, the prophets. And in Revelation chapter 7, in verse 9, in this passage about the 144,000, God shows us exactly where it is that He would like to go with this fallen planet. What is the destination that God has in mind? How big are God's plans? We're going to look at Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. I'm going to read this passage. We're going to pray, and then we're going to study together. Let's read now in Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I beheld... Now, there's a pattern... In the Bible, in the book of Revelation in particular, where John first hears something, then he turns and sees it. In Revelation chapter 1, he hears a voice like many waters, then he turns and sees Jesus dressed like an Old Testament priest. In Revelation 4 and 5, he hears about the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's in Revelation chapter 5, and he turns and he sees the slain lamb. Now in this chapter, he hears about the 144,000, he turns, and this is what he sees. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. The, the, the thing that I'd like you to dwell on today is found in verse 9. The thought that I want to expand on as we begin our study today is this great multitude that no man could number. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, this morning as we turn to the pages of your book, we understand and believe in our hearts that this is not like the other books we have in our home. This is not a collection of philosophy. This is not a collection of editorials or opinion. This is the voice of Almighty God speaking to His people. This is the voice of Christ beckoning to our hearts. And I pray that we would remember how sacred a moment spent in the Bible is. Peter wrote that we are born again by the Word of God. And our desire, our dream, our prayer this morning is that as we approach the Bible, we would be born again by what we read. That we would become more like Jesus. That at the end of this time spent in your presence, we would resemble Christ more nearly that His character would be reflected in us more closely. I ask this morning, Father, that You would cover me with the blood of Christ and forgive my sin. I have no right to stand up and speak. 
And I ask for forgiveness. I ask that you would make me fit. I ask that you would make my thoughts clear and my voice clear so that the only thing we hear now in this hour is the voice of Jesus speaking to us. Give us that gift, we ask. And we covenant with you that when you speak to our hearts, we will respond to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The other day I was traveling, which isn't entirely unusual, and I, I came back to the office, and when I came back to the office, sitting on my assistant's desk, Rochelle's desk, right there in front of me was a package from Amazon.com. And I got really excited because there was really nothing like getting a package from Amazon.com. It means that you have gotten a book and that is a marvelous thing because you just send away to Amazon.com and you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait for about a day and a half and then the book comes right to your office. And I tore this book open, this package, I went inside and at this point I didn't even really care what was on my appointment calendar anymore because I had a new book and it was on ancient Babylonian history. What a great book. And this is ancient, ancient Babylonian history, way predating Nebuchadnezzar and the Neo-Babylonian Empire. This goes as far back as we can study among the Babylonians. So I, I closed the door of my office, I sat on the couch, and I started to thumb through the book. And as I'm reading, I get down to about, oh, page 68 or so, and I'm reading about Hammurabi, the great lawgiver of Babylon. And as I'm reading about Hammurabi, two thoughts cross my mind. Thought number one was, Sean, when you were living on the Alaska Highway, you would have given your left leg for Amazon.com because you could not get your hands on books when you lived up there. And the nearest bookstore was two hours away in Grand Prairie, Alberta. And that bookstore had coffee table books and Harlequin romances. That is all they had. And it didn't take long to read all the coffee table books. And the Harlequin romances, well, I'm just not a romantic guy. I don't need a Harlequin romance at all because I married the perfect girl and I've got all the romance I need in my life. She may not have all the romance she needs in her life because I've never read a Harlequin romance. But I was reading the book thinking I never had access to books like this before. This is fantastic. That was thought number one. Thought number two as I'm reading that book was, Sean, what in the world are you doing? You are reading a history book. And when you were in high school, you hated the subject of history. I really hated history. I mean, I can't even begin to describe how much I hated history. I thought, what is the point of studying history? This is all about a bunch of dead people. There is nothing they can do to change their life. They can't go back. You can't sit down and talk to them. They can't change their decisions. It is a waste of time to study people who are already dead. We ought to be studying people who are alive. I didn't see the point at all. And, and, my apologies in advance to the Canadians present, because I know when you're in Palm Springs, there's a lot of Canadians here. But the fact that it was a Canadian history textbook didn't help the matter at all. I thought Canadian history was the most boring history on earth. I really didn't see the point. I'm about 15 years old reading the history textbook. And in that textbook, I remember it very distinctly. I thumbed through looking for something exciting and I couldn't find it. I found our biggest civil disturbance in Canadian history. Do you know what the biggest civil disturbance in Canadian history was? It was the Winnipeg General Strike of 1919. How many of you sitting here this morning have ever heard of the Winnipeg General Strike of 1919 by show of hands? 
And we have Canadians here. There's not even one. I, nowhere have I asked. And Christine Woolman, you've heard of it. You live in Winnipeg. I asked your wife, Reuben, has you ever heard of the Winnipeg general strike of 1919? And she said, Sean, I just don't go back that far. <laughs> Nobody's ever heard of it. Yet it was our biggest civil disturbance, according to that textbook. Let me tell you what happened during the Winnipeg general strike of 1919. 6,000 angry Canadians, I know it's hard to picture angry Canadians, but 6,000 angry Canadians all gathered in front of the Winnipeg City Hall. It's just after World War I, and they're upset. There's high unemployment, the economy is bad, and so they get together for a rally, and they start getting a little more emotional, a little more disturbed, and at the height of their anger, at the height of their frustration, they pushed over an electric streetcar. And that is the biggest civil disturbance in Canadian history. Now, it got a little bit worse. The police were watching this, and they got a little upset because, you know, it was 1919, and it's 15 months after the Bolshevik Revolution, and they're worried, uh-oh, it's the communists, they've come to Canada. And so they rode into the crowd, and they fired their guns. Two people did get shot, so that was pretty bad. That's front-page news when two people get shot in a civil disturbance. But still, I read the whole history book, and that was the biggest civil disturbance in Canadian history. Two dead. When you're 15, that doesn't fire your imagination at all. I heard that other countries had different history. I heard about the French. They gather their courage. They storm the Bastille. They're cutting people's heads off with guillotines. They're murdering Robespierre in the bathtub. They are killing the monarchy. They're overthrowing the papacy. They set up a republic. That sounded so much more exciting than pushing over electric streetcars. The Bolsheviks overthrew the Tsarist regime. Down south of the border, I looked at my American neighbors. They were throwing tea into the harbor. They're liberating themselves from England. They have a civil war that produces a great man like Abraham Lincoln. But what do Canadians do? We push over streetcars. And when you're 15 years old, there's something about that that doesn't fire your imagination. And that textbook left me with the distinct impression that history was a waste of my time. If you were going to discover me off campus during school hours, it would always be during history class. I hated history. I mean, what was the point of going? What else was I going to learn? Canada's always been very cold. We have a lot of maple syrup. We log, we mine, and we fish. I mean, I already knew that stuff. So what's the point of going to class? I hated history class. Now, here's what I want you to think about. Here's a teenage boy who hates history. I, I don't see the point of it. I mean, if, if the History Channel had existed in those days, I would have called the cable company and had that one channel cut off to my house. I hated it. And along comes a group of people known as the Seventh-day Adventists, which, if you think about it, are history on legs. These people love history. They have charts with dates. They know people with names like Hiram Edson and Uriah Smith. I mean, these are the people of history. Now, what are the odds that the people of history meet a young man like me who hates the subject of history? What are the odds they're going to be able to reach me with the gospel of Jesus Christ? What are the odds of that? If you go to the church growth experts, and I've, I've gone to see what they say, and I've listened to what they say, if you go to some of the church growth experts, they're going to tell you, forget it. Those odds 
are not very good. That kid hates history. You cannot go and talk to him about Egypt and Israel and Babylon and Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome and the Reformation and the Waldensians and the Great Awakening and, and the Wesley brothers. And you can't talk to him about that stuff because you'll fall asleep before you ever finish your first lecture. And lecture, forget about lecture. That is so out of touch. This kid's going to fall asleep before you ever finish your first lecture. He's into ACDC and Motley Crue and Kiss. If you don't have some kind of a concert, he's going to be out the door before you ever get a word out of your mouth. You have got to change everything if you want to reach a kid like this. You better change your message and you better change your method of delivering it. You know something? I've seen the studies by some of the church growth experts and... They look pretty good. What they say seems to make a lot of sense. I mean, they've got the numbers to prove what they're saying. They have their finger on the pulse of modern culture and thinking. They've got the data. They've got the charts. They have the cultural studies. And it seems to make good sense. And in the early 21st century, a lot of Christians are listening to what these church growth experts say. And they're paying attention. And they say, well, if the church growth experts say that America's getting less and less religious, and after all, we did see that on the cover of Newsweek magazine this week, America's getting less and less religious. Well, if that's true, maybe we should be preaching less and less Bible and more and more from something else. I mean, that would fit what the experts are saying. And if the experts are saying young people don't want to go to church, then maybe we should make church look like it's not church and make it look like something else and have a coffee house and a concert and a social club. And if the experts say secular people don't really care about Bible prophecy and they're not sure whether or not God exists and they're not sure if there's such a thing as absolute right and wrong, then maybe it's time to rethink this idea of preaching our message out of the book of Revelation. People are listening to these experts because the experts seem to have the data, the numbers to prove it. On the surface, it makes good sense. What they're saying appeals to our logic. Or if we're more honest, it appeals to our fear. It appeals to our fear because it scares us a little bit that God says, here, take this message. The three angels' messages, I want you to take this message and go preach it to those people, every nation, kindred, tribe, tongue, and people. And we look at that, and that scares us. What do you mean, Lord, this message, those people, that's not possible. It scares us. So when an expert comes along and says, well, it can't really be done anymore, we breathe a huge sigh of relief, and we say, all right, Lord, well, we would preach that message if we could, but we have seen now that it isn't possible anymore. I mean, our grandparents used to be able to do that, but it's just not possible anymore, so I guess we'll just have to wait for the latter rain to fall, and the Lord can finish the work. I don't like it when people say that, because we're kind of saying, you know what, Lord, we've done all the work right up till now, and now the Lord will finish the work. When the truth is, the Lord's been doing it all along. He started the work, He did everything in between, and He finishes it. Lord, we'd do it if we could, but the experts say we can't. I've looked at the studies. There's just one little problem with them. I, I put them all side by side. I get all the studies from all the experts, and I'm trying to figure out, well, who's left? What can I preach? 
Who can I preach to? I mean, who could I take the Bible and preach to according to the experts? And I look at all the results side by side, and I'm left with such a tiny strip of humanity that it doesn't even remotely resemble the great numberless multitude we read about just a moment ago in Revelation 7. God says you won't be able to count those who come in through the three angels' messages. You won't be able to count them. That crowd is so big. What the experts say doesn't match what my Bible says. What the experts say doesn't look at all like Revelation chapter chapter 14, the nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. It doesn't look at all like the promise of God in Revelation 18 to light up the world with the glory of Jesus Christ. And what the experts are saying doesn't look at all like God's promise to Abraham. Abraham, wake up. What is it, Lord? Get out of the tent. i got to show you something. Come outside. Abraham's rubbing the sleep out of his eyes. Look up in the sky, Abraham. Look up. What is it, Lord? Count the stars. One. There's a lot of stars, Lord, and the longer I look, the more there are. That's right, Abraham. That's how many descendants you're going to have. That's how many. Now come with me down to the riverside. Grab a handful of sand. How much do you have in there? What do you mean? About a handful. No, count them. One, two. Get two handfuls. Pick up the whole beach, Abraham. Come on now. How much sand is there? I don't know, Lord. It's a numberless multitude. That's right. That's how many disciples. That's how many descendants. That's how many followers you're going to have. There is a numberless multitude standing before the throne of God on the day we arrive in heaven. And the experts say it's not possible. It doesn't agree with what God says. It doesn't look like the promise of God. So either God made a mistake with the message He gave us to preach, or God made a mistake with the audience He told us to preach it to, or maybe there's a problem with the studies. Maybe there's a problem with the experts. Now, I want to be careful what I say because I love academia. Those who know me know that I have thousands of books in very large piles all through my house. A lot of them. As a matter of fact, a friend told me yesterday, we heard you're moving, and we know you have a lot of books. That's why we didn't show up. I love academia. I absolutely love to study. I love it. If there wasn't so much work to do in the field right now, I'd probably be sitting in a classroom somewhere. I love academia. I want to make that clear, but I have just one question. How infallible has human academia been for the last thousands of years? How infallible? Have we ever made a mistake? Ever? Do you know that for centuries it was a scientifically proven fact, scientifically proven, that men had more teeth than women? Absolutely scientifically true. The reason we believe that was because no less a luminary than Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, one day as he's parading around in the front of his classroom, that comes out of his mouth. Men have more teeth than women. I don't know what his thought process was. I don't know how he came to that conclusion, but it came out of his mouth. And everybody looked at each other and said, must be true. Aristotle said it, and Aristotle's the most learned man we know. So for centuries we assumed it was true. There was only one problem with Aristotle's study, he was a married man, but he never took the time to sit his wife down and count her teeth. Not once. For years we believed that fires were caused by a mysterious chemical substance called phlogiston. If something burned, it had phlogiston in it. If something didn't burn, it didn't have phlogiston. When rapid oxidation started, phlogiston would start flowing. So wood had phlogiston, cotton, paper, all had phlogiston, but stone and steel did not. The problem with the study was is we just never heated up stone and steel hot enough to watch them burn because they'll burn if you get them hot enough. Phlogiston doesn't exist, but for a while it was a scientifically proven fact. How 
often have we been infallible? How often? See, I'm not against academia at all. The problem is, though, when we begin to take ourselves too seriously. It's good to study. But it's wrong to put complete faith in human study. It is. Because the Bible warns us that it is possible to fall into a condition where you are ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. It is possible to accumulate facts and data and assemble charts and write theses and never know anything for sure. It is possible to collect information and never come to the point where you actually believe something and figure out where you stand. So today, if I have to choose between what the growth experts say and what the Bible says, I'll tell you which one is a safer bet. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You're not going to go wrong. Nobody has ever, ever had to apologize for the words found in this book. Not once in thousands of years have Christians ever had to back down and say, whoops, the Bible made a mistake. Not once, but academics have had to do it all the time. If I have to choose, the choice is obvious. I'm going with the Bible. And any study that contradicts what God said the church is supposed to be doing is absolutely dead wrong. And how do I know? Because here I am 25 years later ripping open a package from Amazon.com. I cannot wait to get into my next history book because I have discovered that it doesn't matter who wrote that history book. All of history shows God nudging the human race toward the kingdom of Jesus Christ and an atheist could write the history book and I will find Jesus in that history. I love history now because Jesus is in history and it's all about Him. The experts are dead wrong. I want to speak a little bit boldly today. Well, I plan to get more bold. (laughs) I'm getting tired of people coming along and giving me reasons that traditional evangelism, they call it, and traditional Bible study won't work. I've heard it all a thousand times. Pastor, you can't expect to come into a city like this and reach people who live like secular pagans with the message of the Bible. That sounds pretty good, except for one little problem. I was living like a secular pagan at one point in my life and somebody opened the Bible for me and here I am. And I've seen thousands of people come in since that were secular pagans and the Word of God still reaches them somehow. Pastor, the studies prove you can only reach people over 55 years of age with a traditional prophetic approach. Sounds logical on some fronts, except for the fact that I was 22 years old when I became a Seventh-day Adventist, and I have literally watched thousands of young people come into the message since that day with my own eyes. Pastor, the only people who come to traditional evangelistic meetings are the people who have never, ever been to college, so you've got to do something different for the academic mind. Sounds okay, except for one problem. I was going to college when I became a Seventh-day Adventist, and I was taking secular courses from some of the most secular minds in North America. Some of those professors were Wiccans and witches and Satanists. I mean, I took from the most anti-Christian professors you can imagine, and here I am. And I've seen thousands more come. It is time for God's people to stop talking ourselves out of doing it. It's time to stop and believe that when God told us to do this job, He knew what He was talking about. God did not make a mistake with this message. God did not make a mistake with the method. He did not make a mistake with the audience He chose. He said every nation, every kindred, every tongue, every people. That's no more time for niche audiences. 
People have said to me, who's your niche audience, pastor? Right from the beginning, are you the pastor for youth? Are you the pastor for white-collar workers or blue-collar workers? Or what is your niche? There's no more time, not in this hour. There's no more time for niche audiences. Our niche audience is sinners. And I have discovered that sinners exist at every level of society. They're everywhere. They're there among the poor and the rich and the famous and the infamous. Sinners are who Jesus reaches. God didn't make a mistake with what he asked us to do. I mean, do you suppose for half a second this morning that God, well, we are gathered here. God is gathering his angels together saying, man, did we blow it? I just didn't see that last day postmodern secular generation coming. I mean, here I gave the three angels messages to the remnant movement. That's what I gave them. And I really blew it because I sure didn't see that last generation coming. Gabriel better get out a pen and paper. Here's the new message. Do you believe it for a minute? God didn't make a mistake. I mean, if, if, if this message will not reach this world, then I almost, almost feel sorry for Lucifer. Because here he is working for 6,000 years on his last day deception, and it's distinctly religious, and it's distinctly prophetic. Or is it possible that he understands what's going to reach the last generation, and he's trying to beat us to the punch? God didn't blow it. If something is wrong with our work, God didn't blow it. We're blowing it. It's not God. I think one of the biggest problems we face in North America is that somehow we've gotten the idea that God gave us an assignment and then He left town and left us to figure out how to do it. That, that somehow we're in charge of it. I don't think we've lost the desire to see souls come into the kingdom. I don't think we've lost our heart for people. I think we've gotten afraid. We're starting to think that it's up to us how we're going to execute God's plan. God gave us an assignment. Now we better figure out how to do it. And that's leading to some really odd thinking in Christianity. Let me, let me share with you what I mean. I'm driving across, I can't remember what state it was, Illinois, a few months ago, and I'm listening to the radio, and I heard about this place. It's called the Church of God Grill. Oh, that's interesting. I turned up the radio. It's a chicken grill. The Church of God Chicken Grill. I had to know, where in the world does the Church of God Chicken Grill come from? Here's what happened. A particular congregation noticed that their audience was dwindling and nobody was coming and they're losing young men in particular and they thought, how can we get them into church? Someone said, I know how we can get them into church. Why don't we have a big old chicken barbecue after church on Sunday afternoon? If we have a chicken barbecue, they'll come. And sure enough, they did. And the chicken was good. They found a very good cook and they had a really good barbecue and the crowd grew and grew and grew every week. The problem with the approach was that they started to focus on chicken and nobody preached the word anymore. So today there is no church, it's just the Church of God grill. They shut down the church anyway. It's not up to us how this work is done. When we try and reinvent the wheel, it ends in disaster. An article I read at the ASI convention a while back, in 2007, October 7, New York Times. Thou shalt not kill, except in a popular video game at church. Well, that got my attention. Turns out a number of churches who again are worried that young men weren't attending their congregations decided to buy a bunch of Xboxes and, and put uh, Halo 3 on those Xboxes, a very violent first-person shooter game. They said, we'll get these young people into church. And the New York Times is looking at this 
scratching their heads saying, how could a church which preaches thou shalt not kill have the whole evening dedicated to shooting each other? They end the article by saying, what price to appear relevant? That's a great question. And I wish we were asking it instead of the New York Times. What price to appear relevant? A few years ago, about 20 years ago in Sweden, a group of Christians got together and said, we really noticed that we're missing men in our congregation. There's a kind of a theme running here, isn't there? Missing men, what are we going to do? And somebody got a brilliant idea. They said, we know, we'll publish a new edition of the Bible. What do you got in mind? We're going to publish the Swedish supermodel Bible. It'll be a wide margin Bible, and it'll have bikini girls in the margin. And that'll get these young boys into church. So they printed it, and they sold thousands of the Swedish supermodel Bible. The only problem was not one of those young men bought it for the articles, if you get my drift. Not one of them. They're reading the margins, but they're not reading the Word of God. And 20 years later, they're still closing the doors of those churches. Why? Because you can't fool people. You can't bait and switch. You can't offer one thing and hope that they'll come after the spiritual content. It doesn't work that way. Let's ask some good questions this morning. I mean, what is it that makes the three angels' messages relevant to people? Somehow we've gotten the idea we need to make it relevant. Think about this. Is it our job to make people think the three angels' messages are relevant? Or is it our job to find people who think the three angels' messages are relevant? There's a world of difference in those two questions. Is it our job to make people think the three angels' messages are relevant, or is it our job to find people who think they're relevant? There's a paragraph in the book Desire of Ages, page 349, that sums up the whole plan of evangelism, soul-winning, God's intentions for His church better than anything I've ever seen. I'm going to share the paragraph with you, and then I want to unpack it biblically, because I have never, ever seen a better description of how soul-winning is supposed to work. Listen to this. The apostles were members of the family of Jesus. Right, right, there's an important fact. If you're not a member of the family of Jesus, if you don't walk and talk with Jesus and sit at His feet and learn, you'll never win someone else to Jesus because you cannot sell what you don't have. The apostles were members of the family of Jesus and they had accompanied Him as He traveled on foot through Galilee. They had shared with Him the toils and hardships that overtook them. They had listened to His discourses. They had walked and talked with the Son of God, and from His daily instruction, they had learned how to work for the elevation of humanity. Now, here it comes. Pay attention carefully. As Jesus ministered to the vast multitudes that gathered about Him, His disciples were in attendance, eager to do His bidding and lighten His labor. They assisted in arranging the people, bringing the afflicted ones to the Savior, and promoting the comfort of all. Here it comes now. They watched for interested hearers. It doesn't say they were making people interested. It says they were watching for interested hearers. Explain the Scriptures to them and in various ways work for their spiritual benefit. They taught what they had learned of Jesus and were every day obtaining a rich experience. That's a powerful little paragraph. That has it all there in a nutshell. I want to draw your attention to five things we just read. Number one, it is Jesus who ministers to the multitudes. It is Jesus who speaks to the hearts of human beings. It's Jesus who is running the show. Number two, the disciples were there watching for people who were interested. 
Then thirdly, they explained the Scriptures to those interested people. Fourthly, they told what they personally knew of Jesus. And fifthly, they obtained a rich experience. I want to take you through those five points very quickly because they are absolutely profound, deeply biblical. Point number one, it is Jesus who ministers to the multitudes. It's not us. The whole message, the whole method, the whole thing belongs to Jesus. There's this story in the book of Revelation in chapter 5 where John has the privilege of being escorted right into the courts of heaven. This is something that only happens to a handful of people in the Bible. Isaiah, Ezekiel gets to see the throne. Paul gets caught up into heaven. But only a handful get to see the throne room of God. John in Revelation 5 is in the throne room of God. And as he's standing there, there is God on the throne with a scroll sealed with how many seals? Oh, you can't all be asleep yet. It usually takes me longer than that now. A scroll with how many? Seven seals. Seven seals. And a voice calls out, who is worthy to open the seals? Open this book. And they couldn't find anybody. And John weeps much. Now, when I first read this passage, when I first started studying Bible prophecy, I kind of assumed this had to be the book of life in God's hand. And I'm not going to say it's not the book of life. But if you look carefully at this chapter, there's something happening here that is huge. This book in God's hand is sealed with seven seals. And as all those seals are open in Revelation chapter 6 salvation history begins to unfold. The history of the church begins to take place. you got the white horse, the early apostolic church, the red horse, the church that is persecuted by the pagan Roman Empire, the black horse, the church that begins to compromise under Constantine. you got the pale horse, the dead church of the Middle Ages. you got the fifth seal. You've got the souls under the altar crying out the martyrs of the Dark Ages, the early stirrings of the Reformation. Under the sixth seal, you have the earthquake, the dark day, the falling of the stars. That prophecy takes you from John's day all the way down to 1830 which is the very year that the Second Advent Movement begins. It's the history of the church unfolded, beginning to end. It ends with the Second Coming. And as John is standing there, nobody can open the seals. That means church history cannot begin. No human being can launch church history. No human being can open those seals. And as John is weeping, suddenly he hears, weep not. He hears about the line of the tribe of Judah and he turns and he sees a slain lamb. Where do you find a slain lamb in the Bible? In a sanctuary. Jesus steps into heaven's sanctuary as a slain lamb. It's sanctuary language. Revelation chapter 5 is taking place on the very day that Jesus is installed as our heavenly high priest. That's what's taking place. I mean, think about this. Jesus says to his disciples, listen, you wait here in Jerusalem. You're going to go to the whole world, but you wait here until you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then you can go. Why couldn't the disciples start earlier? Because without heaven's sanctuary, they can't do a thing. It's all God's plan. It's all God's plan. So they wait in Jerusalem, and on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls on them, and they begin to speak in the languages of everybody present. And Peter gets up and tells the crowd in Acts chapter 2 and verse 33. This is important. He says, what you are seeing here today is because Jesus just received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father. It wasn't the church that got the Holy Spirit that day. It was Jesus. He said, Jesus just received the gift of the Holy Spirit from the Father, and He shed it forth on us. 
Psalm 133, describing the anointing of the high priest. How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the oil on the head of Aaron that runs down his beard and off the hem of his garment. What is oil a symbol of? Holy Spirit. Jesus steps into heaven's sanctuary. He receives the gift of the Spirit. It runs over him down on the church beneath. He's installed as heaven's high priest. The disciples receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and now they can go to the world. And what does that tell me? The whole plan of salvation isn't up to us. It's all run by Jesus from heaven's sanctuary. We don't do any of it. The Bible says God gives people the gift of repentance. God brings people to the cross of Christ. Jesus said, no man comes to me except the Father who sent me draws him. The Holy Spirit, John 16, brings people under conviction. God picked the method. God picked the message. God picks the audience. It's all his work. None of it is up to us. And nowhere in the pages of the Bible will you ever find God asking us to rewrite one word of it. It's entirely up to him. Point number one. Jesus speaks to the multitudes. It is Jesus who speaks to this world through the voice of the Holy Spirit. Point number two, the disciples are watching the people. And they're looking for people who exhibit interest. They're looking for the interested hearers. They are not trying to make people interested because you can't do that. How do I know you can't do that? 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You and I can't make people spiritual. We can't do it. It is not possible. That is God's role. Jesus speaks to them through the Holy Spirit. He begins to stir their hearts. The disciples then watch for people who exhibit interest, and what do they do? They explain the Scriptures to people. All over this world, God is waking up hearts to listen to His voice. All over this world, the Spirit is stirring people. Every evangelistic campaign I have ever been to, everybody who comes, God has been speaking to them long before they got a handbill in the mail, long before somebody invited them there. God gets to people first. Our job is to watch people who is interested. And when you find someone interested, and there are millions of them, Jesus said the fields are white for harvest. There are millions of We take the Scriptures and we explain it to them. And as they listen to the words of the Bible, something goes off in their mind. They say, hey, wait a minute. I recognize that voice in that book. That's the voice that's been speaking to me all my life. We don't convert people. God converts people. We go out and find the people that God is converting. All we're doing is helping them connect the dots. That's all we're doing. We're helping them connect the dots. And God is letting us in on the whole process for our joy and growth. Now, when I first caught on to this, my life got easier as a Seventh-day Adventist evangelist, got easier overnight. I suddenly realized I don't have to make everybody interested. I, I have to go out there and find the interested people. And there's a lot of them. I used to be terrified of an altar call. I mean, I still get the willies. I still get a little nervous. I'll be honest. You know, you get nervous. You want it to go well. But I used to be terrified. What if I stand up front and ask people to come? And I, I say everything I know how to say, and I really work hard, and nobody comes. And I'm there for 20, 25, 30 minutes, every preacher's fear. What if they have 30 minutes of appealing, and nobody comes, I'll look like an idiot. I mean, more of an idiot than I usually look like. And then I got it. I don't have to convince people. I don't have to be convincing enough. I have to appeal to people that God is convincing. And that's utterly different. And I've discovered those people are absolutely everywhere. You wouldn't believe what is going on in these final moments before Jesus comes. People are coming out of the woodwork. I'm in Vaughn's grocery store. 
Friday afternoon, and I'm doing the shopping for Jean. She's I'm on my cell phone, and, and I'm up, and I, I have to have her on the phone because I don't know my way around, around a grocery store. I can find noodles. I can always find noodles, but after that, I can't find anything else. So she's helping me find stuff and put it in the basket, and as I'm going past the deli counter, the woman behind the counter thinks I'm talking to her. And so I said, honey, I got to go. The, the lady behind the deli counter thinks I'm talking to her, and that's really rude, so I better go. So I, I hung up. And I know you don't actually hang up a cell phone like that, but it's years of hanging up phones that do that. And I go to the deli counter, and I said, you know, I'm really sorry. That was rude. I was talking on my cell phone walking past. You thought I was talking to you. She says, oh, no problem. All is forgiven. But now that I have your attention, we have chicken on sale, $5 each, wholly roasted. How many do you want? I said, man, those look really good. I mean, they smell good, and they look good, and they're nicely presented, and what a bargain. I'm Dutch. I mean, I can hardly help myself. Five dollars each, but I don't want any. She says, why don't you want any? I said, I'm a vegetarian. She said, you big liar. You just don't want to buy any chicken. You're not a vegetarian. I said, no, really, I am a vegetarian. She said, really, a vegetarian? Did you grow up a vegetarian? I said, no, I became one later in life. She said, why? I said, well, I kind of found out it's better for me. Really, she said. You know what? I grew up a vegetarian, she said, but I'm not one now. I eat chicken like this all the time, but I probably should be eating more of a vegetarian diet. That'd probably be better for me. She said, that's really interesting. You became a vegetarian. I grew up a vegetarian. That's really interesting. I said, yeah, that really is interesting. She said, no, you don't understand. I was really, really vegetarian. I said, how does somebody be really, really vegetarian? I... She said, every weekend we would make a lentil loaf and we would make a cashew roast and a special K loaf. And all of a sudden, an alarm bell goes off in this preacher's head thinking, this is a former Seventh-day Adventist because who else on earth would ever eat this stuff? <laughs> so I thought, I'm going to change the language a little bit. I said, that's so interesting. You grew up an Adventist and I became one later in life. She said, that's right. Oops! I said, here's the really interesting part. I'm an Adventist preacher. You've just been busted. <laughs> Every day now. If our eyes were open and we spent our time looking for interested people, her head hung. She says, I need to go back to church. If we spent our time looking for interested people instead of trying to rewrite the plan, we'd be home by now. They're everywhere. They found the interested people. They explained the Scriptures to them. Look at the way the New Testament works. There is no such thing as a cold interest. Everybody who's baptized in the book of Acts, God got to them first. Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches, 3,000 come to Christ. But who are they? The Bible says they are devout men from every nation under heaven. God got to them first. Acts chapter 8, Philip gives the Bible study to the Ethiopian eunuch. And how does that happen? The angel comes and says, Philip, you got a Bible study. You better hurry up. You're late. He's almost done the book of Isaiah, and you are way late for your Bible study. Come on. God got there first. Acts chapter 9, God comes to Ananias. Ananias, have I got a Bible study for you? What do you got in mind, Lord? Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus! No, that's not the possible Bible study. You don't understand, Lord. He kills Christians. He's rounding them up. I'm not Saul of Tarsus. Yeah, don't worry about that, says Jesus. I already knocked him off his horse. He's been feeling conviction since the stoning of Stephen. He's been three days in the dark. I've taken care of it all. Go give your Bible study. God gets there first. Acts chapter 10, the first Gentile convert, Cornelius. What does the Bible say about him? He is a devout man. He's already been giving gifts to the temple. 
God always gets there first. God says, go find the interested people and explain the scriptures to them. And using the Bible to reach people is such an inviolable principle that even Jesus himself on the road to Emmaus, in his resurrection body, when he comes across two discouraged disciples, they don't know what to believe anymore. Their whole world has fallen apart. They look just like what people say the postmoderns are now. They're shuffling through the sand, going home discouraged. Jesus shows up, and he could have revealed himself by letting divinity flash through humanity, but he doesn't. What does Jesus do? He opens the Bible, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he showed them the scriptures concerning himself. And if a Bible study is a good enough method for my resurrected Savior, I'm going to use that method till Jesus comes. Point number four. The disciples told people what they personally knew about Jesus. Nothing more powerful than your personal testimony. You know, people can argue about the Sabbath. They can argue with you about the state of the dead. They can argue with you about the heavenly sanctuary. They can argue with you about the second coming of Christ. But there's one thing nobody can argue with. If your heart has been utterly transformed by the power of Jesus Christ, they can't argue it. There's no argument for a changed life. They can't fight it. There's this story in Daniel chapter 6. I love it. Darius is pacing the floor all night. He can't sleep. They try to bring him music. Get the music out of here. I can't sleep. And I don't want the music. I love the story because I, I spend a lot of nights pacing the floor. I, I see in Darius something I recognize. And Darius is pacing the floor, and that tells me that everybody, no matter what kind of a front you put on to the world, no matter what position you hold, everybody has a sleepless night. Everybody comes under conviction. God's Spirit speaks to everybody. And what's Darius's problem? He has signed an agreement that is irreversible and it's going to lead to death. Kind of like Adam and Eve outside the gates of Eden have signed a deal with the devil. It's going to lead to death and now it is irreversible. So Darius is pacing the floor. He cannot sleep. And early in the morning he runs to the lion's den and he does not call out, Daniel, are you okay? That's not what he says. He says, Daniel, the God whom you serve continually, has he been able to save you? He's watching Daniel, hoping that Daniel's God is real. And I promise you, I don't care how well they hide it, somebody is watching you. I don't care what kind of a front they put up, what position they hold, they have sleepless nights and they're watching you and they're hoping against all odds that the God you serve was able to save you. Because if He could save you, maybe He can save them. They want God to be real. I have met the most bitter atheists on earth. They don't disbelieve God. They're angry at Him. They're hoping He really is real. Sit down with anybody. They hope He's real. They watch us. And in their silent prayers in the middle of the night, they cry out, the God that these people serve, are you real? Are you real? Your testimony. The disciples shared what they knew of Jesus. Point number five. Because they followed God's plan, the disciples obtained a rich experience. All over North America, I talk to people who sit in church and they go home every week and I hear one thing come out of them. I don't see the point. What did I get out of that? What did I get out of that sermon? What's there for me? And the more we say stuff like that, the less healthy our churches become. In Joshua chapter 1, 
After Moses is dead, God comes to Joshua. I mean, picture being Joshua. How, how do you step into Moses' shoes? Wouldn't you rather follow an abysmal failure than Moses? Joshua, it's time to go in. It's been 40 years now. You couldn't go in because of unbelief, Hebrews 3.19. Couldn't go in because of unbelief, but 40 years has gone by. It is time to go in. As a matter of fact, I want you to reestablish the Passover and reestablish circumcision. They've been missing for 40 years. Why have they been missing for 40 years? Because those are symbols for people who believe and have faith to follow God's Word. They're symbols of faith. They've been missing for 40 years. Reestablish them because God says, I'm about to reopen the school of faith. And what is the school of faith, folks? It is the job that God gave us to do. Evangelism isn't just about winning people to the kingdom because angels could probably handle that. It's about giving us an education so we learn how to live in the kingdom now so that when we get there, we fit right in. It's about teaching us to believe. It's about teaching us to have faith enough that when God gives us an assignment, He'll take care of the details. All right, Joshua, time to go in. Joshua goes out of town to pray. And something happens in Joshua 5. Jesus shows up with his sword drawn. He said, I am the captain of the Lord's host. Here's the plan. Now, Joshua is the only one who sees that. And he has to go back to Israel and convince them what they're going to do. He's the only one left besides Caleb of the original generation, by the way. Which I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but I do wonder... The original generation in this movement, that they have enough information for you and I to finish the work, you better believe it. Joshua has to go back and convince, okay, it's time to go in now. All right, Joshua, we don't want to make the same mistake that Grandpa made. Let's go in. We'll do it. we got to cross the Jordan River first, so we better get busy on a bridge. No bridge. What do you mean no bridge, Joshua? I mean, look at it. How are we going to get across? We're going to walk through. Walk through, it's flood season. That water's six feet deep this time of year. We're going to lose every soldier five foot eleven and shorter. They're going to be gone. Not going to work. We've got to build a, a bridge. What's the plan? We're going to walk. We're going to follow the Ark of the Covenant through that. Well, Ark of the Covenant, that's the only thing of value we own. It's going to be washed downstream. What a plan. Follow the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because that is God's throne, the Ark of the Covenant. That is God's throne in heaven's sanctuary. It is a message to you and I in the final moments of this earth's history that God runs the show from the sanctuary, and our job is to follow His lead. They step into the river, and it dries up. They walk through on dry land. All right, Joshua, that worked pretty good, we got to admit. Now what? We're going to attack some little village, right? Let's take the little ones out. No, Jericho. Jericho's the biggest fortress around. We can Jericho? No way. What's the plan? We better get busy. We need some weapons. And we need to build some ramps up against the wall and start battering on the doors. We've got to work hard on this. No, don't need weapons. What do you mean no weapons? What are we going to do? We're going to march around the city. March around the city, right. Joshua, we're going to march around. How long are we going to march around? Seven days. Joshua, if we march around the city for seven days, they're going to stand on the wall and pick us off one by one. Seven days. Yeah, we're going to follow the ark. That's the plan. Take a careful look at what happens. Joshua sees what the rest of them can't see. They're not going to ever touch the walls. Jesus has gone ahead as the captain of the Lord's host. It's the armies of heaven that bring it down. The whole thing has been run by God the whole time. And our job has simply been to believe and follow. And when it comes to the work of soul winning and taking the three angels' messages to the impossible world, we're not doing a lick of it anyway. God is out there with His angels doing it. We are along for the education. 
Take a look. Take a look at the story of Jericho. You'll see something remarkable taking place in that story. Think about this. Jesus leads the armies of heaven. You read that at the end of chapter 5 of Joshua. Just like in Revelation 19, Jesus leads the armies of heaven back to this world in the very end. And when the walls fall, there's a mighty shout and a trumpet blast. Just like when Jesus comes, there is a mighty shout and a trumpet blast. And it says in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 19 that when the walls of Jericho fell, they went and they got the gold, the silver, the brass, and the iron and put them in the Lord's treasury. Just like in Daniel 2 when the statue crumbles, the gold, the silver, the brass, and the iron are blown away and then God sets up His kingdom. Jericho is the second coming of Christ and it is a lesson for God's last day remnant people. Follow the ark. Follow Jesus in the sanctuary and you will see the work done. God knows what He's talking about. When little Ricky was born, the umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck. And it did all kinds of damage. Doctor said to his dad, you may as well put him in an institution because there's no hope. There's nothing going on in there. His dad said, I'm not putting him in an institution. It's my son. I'm taking him home. I don't believe you. For 11 years, no hope. And then one day, his dad is walking across the room. All of a sudden, he sees Ricky's eyes move. He thought, there is somebody in there. He's following me. He took his son down to the engineering department of the university. He says, my son is in here somewhere. Can you build something so he can communicate with me? Some sort of electrical device, please. They looked the boy over. They said, there's no hope. What could we ever build for him? There's nobody in there. Oh, no, my son is in there. Tell him a joke. We don't want to tell him a joke. Tell him a joke. They told a joke. It was a bad one. The little boy giggled. (laughs) See, he said, his dad, I told you he's in there. So they built a machine that he could move his head and tap on a little key and type out messages on a laptop computer. And got home and he worked on it and learned it and learned it and learned it and finally wrote his full first message to his dad. First thing he ever said, go Boston Bruins. 11 years he'd been watching hockey and hadn't been able to say a word. Went to high school. He did very well. One day he came home, tapped out a message to his dad. He said, you know, Dad, there's been a car accident. One of the kids at school is now paralyzed, and I know what that's like. And they got a fundraiser. They're going to raise money to help with his hospital bills, and I want to take part. Well, what kind of fundraiser is it, son? It's a five-mile run, and I want to do it. And I want you to push me. His dad looked down. He said, man, son, five miles. It's been a little while and I'm fluffier than I used to be. Dad, I got to do it. You could tell by the sparkle in his boy's eyes he didn't have a choice. So they went out five miles, ran that day, pushing his son. When they came home that night, Ricky hooked himself up to the computer, tapped out a message and said, Dad, today when you pushed me, I didn't feel disabled anymore. Don't don't you see it? You and I really aren't capable of winning the world anyway. But God puts us in the school of faith and gives us this job to do so that when we step into the kingdom of heaven, we can turn to our heavenly father and say, Lord, because of all that, I don't feel disabled anymore.
Please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, help us all to realize that the latter rain is falling. Help us to decide to join your team in this last days of world history. Help us also to realize as we leave this place that we are entering the mission field. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.